Hey, good morning, everybody. I know we're still doing the offering. That's fine, so we can finish that up. But uh, my name is Sawyer Trapp. I'm one of the pastors here at Stapleton Church. And I found out I was preaching today, this Wednesday, because the twins are here. If we've heard about it, it's very exciting. Yes, the twins are here. So uh, our lead pastor, Matt, and his wife, Melissa, gave birth to their twins. Um, there's a wonderful picture of them, though. So on your guys's left, I messed up in the first service, but uh, is Cain and Samuel, their son, and then Evangeline, they're going by Evie, Kate, they're on your guys' right. So that's very exciting, wonderful, wonderful blessing for them and their family and the result of a true miracle, if you heard last week, um, and, and truly God's blessing and provision to them. So we're really excited about that. Um, they are back at home now from the hospital, just relaxing, getting used to now moving from a family of three to a family of five. So please don't stop praying now. They need more encouragement and prayer than ever. Um, so I, having only one for those first couple months was a lot for Sarah and I, so I can't imagine what having two is like. So they definitely need lots of prayers, um, the ability to survive on very little sleep. So let's keep praying, keep encouraging, but it's very exciting. Uh, today, though, we are jumping into a new series, as Grant mentioned, on investigating Jesus, origins, looking at the very early years of Jesus' life, his birth, and what significance that may have for our lives. Um, obviously, we're in a church, we're going to talk about Jesus, but I really want you to dive in this morning, to think critically, to put on your detective hat and look at the evidence of who Jesus is. Because I think there's really good evidence to believe that Jesus was who he says he was. God incarnate. God in the flesh coming into the world to save it. So I think if we look at the evidence throughout this series and actually throughout 2020 as we move throughout the entire book of Luke. Don't worry, we're going to break it up with other series in between. We'll, we will be going through an entire book of the Bible in 2020 the book of Luke, looking at who Jesus is, his significance of the events in his life, the importance of his death and resurrection, and what that might mean for us living as we come to a new decade of life here in the United States. Far removed, 2,000 years from the life of Jesus, do the teachings, do the life and do the death and resurrection of Jesus still have an impact on our lives today? And I think as we start to come to conclusions on those questions, especially during this Christmas season, I think this Christmas can be more than just cookies and trees, traditions and gift giving. It could actually lead us to worship the one true King. So I really encourage you over the next coming weeks as we move towards Christmas, as we have this beautiful stage to enjoy, that you will come to a decision, come to a conclusion on what it means that Jesus was born in the manger, that God has broken in to the world. If you were here yesterday for our Christmas Palooza event, really appreciate it that we have these beautiful decorations throughout our building to celebrate Christmas together. We also stuffed over a hundred stockings for Denver Ignite Ministries um, for students from all over the world to enjoy a Christmas present and uh, just enjoy some health and beauty aids and some awesome food and snacks. Um, so thank you if you helped out, if you donated some of those items for those stockings and for making the stage and the church look so beautiful this time of the year. So it's officially Christmas season and Stapleton Church, and I'm really excited about it. I hope you are too. 
Um, we're going to keep pressing this over the next coming weeks, but we have three Christmas Eve services. Hopefully by the end you will all be able to say it with me because we want you to commit this to memory. So when you're out and about throughout your week, when you're talking to your neighbors, when you're checking out at King Supers, when you're doing your dreaded Christmas shopping, whatever that looks like, you can be like, hey, why don't you come with me? Christmas Eve, Stapleton Church, three services, 3.30, 5, and 6.30 p.m. right here at the church on Christmas Eve where we can celebrate together of God breaking into the world and what that means that we can have joy and happiness that lasts through the problems and difficulties of life that we can experience the sound of joy. So there's flyers in the back. If you're interested, you can take one of those, um, hand it to a person in your life. And also later on in today's service, we'll actually be doing an original song written by our very own worship leader, Bobby Brunswick, as a service. You can download that. We've recorded it. It's staplesandchurch.com slash Christmas, and you can download a free download of that to really get you excited and looking forward to our Christmas Eve services. So that's all about Christmas Eve. Today, we are jumping into the book of Luke, chapter 1, verse 1, starting right at the beginning. But before we do that, I have a little quiz for you guys, a little test, okay? Now, it's not going to be hard. You don't need a pen or paper. You don't need to break out your Scantron or anything like that just need to listen. I'm going to make a few statements about a very important person. And at the end, when I tell you, you're going to shout out your answer, okay? So these are the statements. This person was born in the first century, and their mother received a vision telling them that their son would not only be a mere human, but would be divine. When the child came, it was accompanied by great signs and wonders in the heavens. And as the child grew up, he started a public ministry of preaching and teaching, talking about a new way to live, and performed signs and wonders and miracles, healing the sick, driving out demons. So much so, gathering a huge following that the Roman government saw them as a threat to their authority and had him put to death. But even after his death, he was seen by his followers. He appeared to his followers, so much so that they now have written writings about his life that we can look at today. Okay. Everybody have a person in their mind, right? Okay. And on the count of three, we're all going to say it together. All right. One, two, Three, Apleonis of Tyana. Wait, did anybody? No Apleonises of Tyana out there, huh? No, of course you all said Jesus. Because they're all, all things that we subscribe, that the Bible claims about Jesus. But in fact, those are all claims made of Apleonis of Tyana. In the writings of him, he was a philosopher, a contemporary of Jesus, who gathered his own following, who was said to perform miracles, signs, and wonders, and was put to death by the Roman government. And biographies of his life had been written by his followers. But if that is true, if the same things that can be said about Jesus, the important parts of his life, can be said about somebody other than Jesus... Does that mean that Jesus really is who he says he is? Does what the Bible say about Jesus, defendable? 
Can we actually believe what this book says about Jesus when other books make the same claims about a completely different person? I think we can. I believe today that we can actually 100% believe what the Bible has to say about Jesus. That in fact, the Bible is true and that Jesus really was who he claimed to be, God. If you are curious about Apollonius of Tyana, he wasn't written about until 120 years after his death in low estimates. Some put it as far as 300 years. And as scholars have looked into the claims of these evidences given in his biography, the ground is shaky, to say the least. But I hope you can see this morning, I hope I can convince you the claims made about Jesus, of who he is, what he has done, and the significance of his life, death, and resurrection have a much, much firmer ground to stand on. Then, in fact, I think if we actually investigate, if we actually dive deep into the evidence and look at who Jesus is, then we can find certainty in that. So if you want to jump into the Bible with me, we are in Luke chapter 1, verse 1, starts off like this. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. If you're anything like me, when you read a book, you skip the introduction, you skip the foreword, the dedication, the prologue, well, all that stuff at the beginning, it doesn't matter, Right? And you jump right into chapter 1 to get into the story or to learn what the book is trying to tell you. But I think it's really, really important for us to look at what Luke gives as his introduction. Because he outlines really important things about what he's trying to do. The research that he's put in before his writing. The purpose behind his writing and who he's writing to. These are really important questions if we're going to investigate for ourselves the person of Jesus. So right off the bat, right in verse 1, Luke acknowledges that he is not the first person to do this. That many have undertaken to do exactly the same thing that he is about to do. Write an account of the life of Jesus. If you've been around church for hopefully just a day, you've heard the word gospel. And gospel comes from a Greek word meaning good news. It describes a messenger coming back from war with news of victory and success for the kingdom. And the earliest Christian community had chosen that word to describe the significance of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That just like the messenger bringing news of victory, Jesus brought the message of good news of salvation. But at the same time, even as we talk about one gospel, one account of Jesus, we read a book and believe a book that has four in it. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So is there one gospel or is there four? I think an important and easy way to understand this 
would be if we all got the opportunity to go to the Super Bowl. Now, you may not want to go to the Super Bowl this year because, sad to say, I don't think the Broncos are going to make it, to say the least. But let's say we all went, maybe your team's in it, maybe it's not. But either way, for a football fan, going to the Super Bowl would be exciting. But even though there's one event taking place, each one of us, if asked about our experience, would present it in a little different way. It would be dependent on how much we were into football, where we were seated, our perspective of the events. If we were right 50-yard line, 10 rows up, perfect view of the whole field, asked about your experience, it would be all about the game, the plays, the winner, the most exciting parts of the game, because you have a great viewpoint of the entire field. Whereas if one of us were a field photographer, up in the corner of the end zone, trying to get the perfect shot of the catch in the end zone, one-armed, over the defender, our experience would be showing the photographs, telling how we got the perfect shot, and less about what actually happened in the game. If you maybe were lucky enough to get a spot on the club level, you probably wouldn't mention the game at all. You'd be like, yeah, I was at the Super Bowl, but I was hanging out. I was in the lap of luxury. I had a full buffet, drinks, hanging out with my friends. You probably wouldn't even mention the game, except that's where you were. Or if you, sadly, were all the way up in the nosebleeds, have your binoculars out, you're trying to see the field, if you were asked, you'd probably just complain. Like, yeah, I was at the Super Bowl. I couldn't see anything. They were out of popcorn. I spilled my drink. Because your perspective of the event is shaped by your experience of it. What you're trying to accomplish by sharing it with someone. And in the same way, the gospel writers, although they are talking about historical events in the life of Jesus, have each a different perspective about it a way of viewing the events that happen, and a specific audience that they're speaking to. So I think it's really important for us to evaluate what Luke's perspective is. Is he on the 50-yard line? Is he a photographer? Is he in the nosebleeds? But before we do that, I think it's also important for us to look at who else has done this before. Because if Luke acknowledges right off the bat that he is not the first person to write this gospel, this account of the life of Jesus, then why is he writing? What purpose does he have in his writing? And where does it fall in the scope of the other gospels? If you've ever looked at the Bible from kind of a critical literary perspective, it soon comes up that there's three gospels that are known as the synoptic gospels. The synoptic gospels, this word just means that they're very similar. There's a lot of crossover between them. That Matthew, Mark, and Luke share a lot of the same content. John, with his unique perspective and way of seeing the world and the audience that he's writing to, ends up with a presentation of the life of Jesus that is distinct and different. Completely valid and helpful. In fact, when people tell me if I'm to read one book of the Bible... Obviously, we want to read all of it, but I lead them to John. But the synoptic gospels share a lot of the same information. There's this crossover in the middle of 180 verses that are shared between Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Even more between Luke and Mark, and Matthew and Mark. So how is it that they share so much information? 
despite their different perspectives and biases and backgrounds and audiences, they're talking about the same things. But that would be true if the actual events of Jesus happened, if they were historical, if they're all pulling from the same life of Jesus. And so right off the bat, in the way that the Gospels are structured, it points us to believe that Jesus was an actual person who walked the earth, who did the things that the Bible says he did, and has the significance of his death and resurrection. Right off the bat, we're supported in our investigation of Jesus. But where does Luke fall in the line of the Gospels? If he wasn't the first, then when was his Gospel written? And as we look at the historical evidence of when the Gospels are written, we find another support for the life of Jesus. The first event that we should have in our mind is around 33 A.D., Scholars put the death and resurrection of Jesus somewhere between 30 and 33 A.D. We can look at that time period and say, this is when the person, Jesus, died, resurrected, and was brought back to heaven. And so that is an important event. And another important event that we can really nail down on is in 70 A.D., the destruction of Jerusalem, an event that has been written about as far as a first century event, more than any other. When Rome brought down the holy city of Jerusalem. A significant event, not only in the life of the Jewish community as they moved beyond the temple, but actually for Christians as well. The destruction of the Jerusalem was a catalyst for the spreading of the gospel, for them being sent out to Judea, to Samaria and to the ends of the earth is the reason why we're sitting in this room at a church. That the horrible event of the destruction of Jerusalem brought about the spread of the good news throughout the world. Where we owe our salvation. So that is obviously a significant event, not just for us, but for the Jewish community that looked to Jerusalem as God's holy city, the temple. So if it was that significant for the lives of the earliest church, the writers of the Bible, then you think it would be mentioned in the book of Acts. Luke's follow-up, his sequel to his gospel as he discussed the earliest church, how the movement of Jesus was taken by the apostles, empowered by the Holy Spirit, and spread to the ends of the earth. If this event is so significant... We think Acts would mention it. But if you look, it doesn't. It doesn't mention the destruction of Jerusalem. It doesn't mention other key events in Paul's life, the death of James, that all happened roughly around this period. So that leads us to believe that the book of Acts was written prior to it. That it didn't write about it because these these haven't happened yet. And so that roughly puts the book of Acts in the 60s A.D., and it would make sense that Luke would write his gospel before he jumps in to what the discussion of the early church is. You don't put out Frozen 2 before you put out Frozen. You put out Frozen first. So the book of Luke was most likely written even prior to that. And we look right in verse 1 that Luke acknowledges that he is not the first, that many have undertaken to do the same thing that he's going to do. And so that puts 
other Gospels prior, even closer to Jesus' death and resurrection than Luke. Mark was most likely the first Gospel written, despite it coming, Matthew coming first in our Bibles today. It's the shortest. It's the most detailed and poignant. It doesn't have a lot of the explanation and extra sources. There's a lot in common with Matthew and Mark and Luke and Mark, but not as much between Matthew and Luke because they were written about the same time. Mark had had the ability to spread his gospel through most of the Christian community by the time that Matthew and later Luke was written. If you're curious about John, it was most likely that it was after the destruction of the temple. That the destruction of Jerusalem led him to write as the Christian community scattered, and John writes a gospel for a community, community that is separated now, that is living apart from the close-knit community of Jerusalem. And as we look at this, you might be sitting there, and it's okay if you are, you're saying, Sawyer, why does that matter? Sure, it's cool to know like when the Gospels were written, but what significance does that have on our investigation and understanding of the person of Jesus? Looking at this, it may seem like that's a long time. Like the Gospels, the account of Jesus, the evidence that we have for who Jesus is, what he did, and the significance of his death and resurrection at the earliest maybe wasn't finished until 50 years after his death. To our modern, instantaneous culture, that seems like a long time. And it is a long time in our lens. But in a first century ancient context, this is so short. As I mentioned at the beginning, all the claims made about Apollonius of Tyana were written at the earliest 120 years, but most likely 200 300 years after his death. The Bible, the New Testament, the Gospels stand alone as literature from the first century. There is more manuscripts, more copies of the New Testament than any other ancient book. If you've ever gone through a high school English class, they probably made you read the Iliad. In the Iliad, nobody would question the existence of that book, its authenticity to its original manuscripts, but there's only 650-some copies, manuscripts, of the Iliad. There is 24,000 manuscripts of the New Testament. The Bible stands in a category of its own, far and above any ancient text. The person of Jesus Who Jesus was, what he did, is the most well-attested person from the first century by far. More than Caesar, more than Pontius Pilate. Fifty years in an ancient context is like a tweet in ours. It's basically instantaneous. So not only do the similarities of the Gospels, but actually when they were written, point us to believe the evidence that they're going to present, that we can have certainty in the claims that are being made. We can believe. And that's exactly where Luke continues on, because not only does he have other Gospels to look at, other research that he's done, he has another important source of information. 
He continues in verse 2. He says, Just as they were handed down to us by those who from first were eyewitnesses, servants of the word. Luke was not a disciple. He was not involved with the three years or so of public ministry of Jesus. But he interviewed people that had shared every living moment of those three years with Jesus. He was a contemporary of Paul who had this dramatic public experience of Jesus, this vision of Jesus that changed him from a persecutor of the Christian community to the world's biggest missionary. That's significant. He interviewed Peter, James, and other disciples who had shared their life with Jesus for three years, seeing what he did, what he taught, how he lived, how he interacted with the people that society pushed aside. Luke was a doctor, a physician, and knew the value of having your homework done, of doing the research before you make a diagnosis. And so before he writes his account, his gospel of Jesus, he not only looks at other gospels that have been written, pulls his own research, but interviews the eyewitnesses who experienced Jesus in the flesh. Peter, in his own book, comes to the same conclusion. In in chapter 1, verse 16, he says, For we did not follow cleverly devised stories. When we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, we didn't make it up. But were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We saw it firsthand. We shared meals together. We talked to one another. We prayed together. We traveled around and saw the way Jesus lived, what he did. And then we saw him die on a cross. And we saw him back to life, raised from the dead in the flesh appearing to them and to over 500 other people after his death and resurrection. They saw it. They experienced it. And now you might be saying, if you've ever looked at the authenticity, the effectiveness of eyewitnesses, it's actually really low. That even though we base our justice system off people who experienced, maybe saw the criminal, saw the person on the justice stand, experienced what had happened so that the judge and the jury can come to a decision, that eyewitnesses are actually notoriously unreliable. There's been hundreds of studies that have looked at people at the way that they remember. Even though they're experiencing events, when you ask them soon after it, their memory switches. Because that's how our memory works. It's not set up to be exactly a picture-for-picture, shot-by-shot retelling of history unless you're like my brother my brother has a photographic memory and growing up i found it so frustrating because anything i would do wrong he would be able to instantly tell my parents and i would get in trouble but maybe you're not my brother most of us can't look at the past and instantly tell us exactly what happened like a photograph it's shaped by our memories by our existing memories our biases, our opinions, our feelings, and our emotion. Our memories are not just a shot-for-shot remake of the past. They're interpreted by who we are, what we've already experienced, and how it shapes us. And that's not wrong, that's just the way it is. So can we actually trust 
these interviews that Luke had of these eyewitnesses. And despite these challenges of eyewitnesses, I actually think that we can. Because we have a tendency, as we've talked about throughout our past God and Science series, to look at the past and look down on them. It's called chronological snobbery. That as we get further and further away from the past, we look and see them as dumb. That we're smarter, more technologically advanced, and certainly are better with everything. But the truth is, is I actually think the people of the first century, the disciples, the followers of Jesus, had a lot better memories than we do. And it's because of these devices in our pocket. The things that we look to, to remember for us the things of the past. How many of you can actually name your parents' phone number, your spouse's phone number, and your kid's phone number? I think we, maybe Kenna can. Good job, Kenna. Maybe, maybe Kenna can, but a lot of us can't. Gauge the world more and more. Forget that our memories that pop up on our Instagrams. Hey, look what you were doing two years ago. In fact, there was a study done by a cybersecurity company in 2015 that found that uh, 44% of people 18 through 55 now claim that their primary source of memory is their smartphone. Their primary source of memory, that they aren't using the brain that God has given them, but they're just outsourcing that to the phone in their pocket. That we no longer have to remember birth dates and phone numbers and events and the beautiful scenery that we enjoy on vacation. No, we just take a picture, we put it on our calendar, we look at our apps. And so now our memories are shaped by our technology. But the first century, the people of the first century had not even had a framework for that. Their memories were shaped by their culture, just as ours are. And their culture was one of oral tradition that they shared what was going on in their lives face-to-face, talking to one another. Writing things down was not only expensive, but it was reserved for the elites of society. And the disciples were far from that. Tax collectors, fishermen, common people. But common people who had a memory that was better than ours who had told these stories of Jesus over and over and over again. If you got the ability to spend three years of ministry with Jesus, seeing how he lived, seeing what he did, seeing the miraculous things that he had done, you think you would remember that. It would be the most significant part of the disciples' life, coming from these regular, ordinary professions and being called by Jesus to this extraordinary Three years of time together. It was most likely the only thing that the disciples talked about. And yet we see them, after the death of Jesus, huddled in a room, scared for their lives. We don't have to judge them for that. They had just seen the man that they had followed for the past three years, the man that they had looked up to, the person who had done these amazing things in their midst, die on a cross. They were worried they were next. But then what do we see in the earliest church, in the book of Acts? These men that moved from being scared, huddled away, hiding from the world, publicly declaring powerfully the good news 
of Jesus, empowered by the Spirit, having thousands come to faith on a single day. These were men that had a memory that was shaped not only by their culture, but by the Spirit. And so I think, despite the problems of eyewitnesses, that we can actually trust Luke's interviews with them. That Luke had done his homework. He had gotten the best research that he can from the time and is now going to give us his thesis statement. Luke's writing teacher from high school would have been proud of him. He would have had a great introduction and it moving towards his thesis statement that just hits you. In verse 3 it says, With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I've looked at all the best evidence, I looked at other gospels, I had these one-on-one interviews with people who were soaked with who Jesus was. I, too, decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. An orderly account. An orderly account. He's looked at the best evidence, he's looked at the other Gospels, and he's telling us what he's trying to do. To present an account that makes the most sense. That looks at the events in Jesus' life and tells which ones are the most significant the ones that matter, and answers our questions of why we care about this man who lived over 2,000 years ago and that we can actually believe who Jesus claimed to be. He also tells us who he's writing to, Theophilus. Theophilus was most likely a rich patron of Luke, somebody who had asked him to write an account of Jesus and who had financially supported him in his writing. As I said earlier, it was really, really expensive and exclusive to write something down. And so if Luke is going to write an account of this person's entire life, he's going to need some money. And Theophilus is the source of that. Theophilus is a Greek name. He was most likely a God-fearer, meaning that he was outside of the Jewish community, but was captivated by the teachings of Jesus. That despite not understanding maybe the Jewish roots, the Jewish foundation of what Jesus was talking about, his message of love, of speaking truth to power, of loving the outcasts of society had captivated Theophilus. And he wanted to know more. He was hungry. He's like, what I've heard about this Jesus is captivating, is encouraging. Luke, will you, will you put this together for me? so that I can know who he was? And maybe that's you in this room. You've heard of some of the claims of Jesus, who Christians believe him to be, perhaps have heard and have been captivated by some of his teaching. I pray that in this series and in the coming year that you will investigate deeper and deeper into who Jesus was and that we all will be drawn into what the last verse says. Because Luke had done his research, he had framed his gospel as an orderly account. But why is he doing any of that? And he tells us in verse 4. I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Why? So that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. The certainty. That's a strong conclusion. He doesn't just say, 
Theophilus and readers of this book, I'm aiming that you find hope. I'm aiming that you end up wishing for salvation. That you end up with a faith of things that you haven't experienced, but you believe they're true. And as value as hope, thinking, and faith, and wishing even are, no, Luke says that we may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. We may have heard snippets of who Jesus is. Maybe we grew up in church and heard in, the, in our Sunday school classes the story of the gospel. Perhaps you've grown up in church. You've never missed a Sunday in your life. But can we really get to a point that we know with certainty who Jesus is and what that means for our lives? I think we can. I think we can actually move from belief and hope into certainty. Yes, we have faith. Yes, we believe that God is doing powerful things even now. But we can have 100% conviction that Jesus existed. That Jesus was born in a manger. That Jesus was raised up in the truth. That he was found in the temple being in his father's house. That he started off his ministry by being baptized, that he taught in parables, that he performed great miracles, healing the sick, bringing sight to the blind, driving out demons, speaking truth to power, convicting the religious leaders of his day of the faults that they have, and showing that the kingdom of God is more than just an earthly kingdom of Rome, but is God breaking into the world even now. And we can have certainty that Jesus lived a life of perfection. That he did not sin and deserved eternity with God, heaven. But he died a sinner's death on a cross. The death that we all deserved, taking upon our punishment, so that we can, if we believe, have renewed relationship with God. That our sins can be forgiven. We can have certainty in the gospel. Certainty in who Jesus was, what he did, his death, resurrection, and ascension, and what that means for our lives here at the end of 2019 as we move into 2020. We can have certainty. So as Bobby comes forward, I just pray that over these next couple of weeks, as we move towards Christmas, as we look forward to the celebration of God breaking into our world and the baby born in a manger, that we would investigate, that we would be drawn to the certainty of the gospel that we can find if we investigate. I challenge you, if you start today and you read one chapter a day, you can have the whole Gospel of Luke finished by midnight on December 31st, if you really want to cut it that close. But you could actually investigate for yourselves before we do the sermons on them, before we look at the investigation. You can investigate. There's nothing stopping you. And I think that when we do, we can find certainty 
in the person of Jesus. We can find what the author of Hebrews writes in chapter 11, the assurance of the things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Sure, we weren't alive when Jesus was alive, but we can have assurance in who he is, what he has done, and what it means that he took on our death and our punishment to bring about salvation for all who believed. We can be certain. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this day and as we move towards your Christmas, God, the celebration of you coming in the flesh, in the baby, born in the manger, God, that this Christmas would be powerful. That it would be more than gifts and traditions and trees, God, but that more and more people would come to know who you are. That they would be drawn and captivated by the message of the gospel, the good news that there is salvation, forgiveness of sins, and renewed relationship with you available for all who believe. And for those of us who do already declare the name of Jesus, God, I pray that we would be moved to certainty, to assurance and conviction that you are who you say you are. And that would encourage us in our faith, God, but more than that, that it would draw us to tell more and more people about the good news of Jesus. That there is power in your name. Amen.